Today's Bible reading is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, if you're wanting to follow along. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together this beautiful morning to worship you and have fellowship with each other. Lord, we thank you for our church and for all who lead us. Help them make wise decisions and guide them in all they do. Help us as we too make decisions with them. Be with James as he opens your word for us this morning. And Lord, we pray that you will give us soft hearts and ears to hear your message to us. Holy Spirit, please be with us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons." In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Alrighty, so we've heard uh, what it looks like from a Presbyterian polity perspective, but now we get to the really, really good stuff, which is what the scriptures say to us about eldership, okay? So the, the, the big question for us on, on this topic is, yeah, what does God's word actually say to us? Because this is an important thing, right? As we get into the polity stuff and the procedure stuff and all that sort of thing, it can seem a little bit removed from our regular routines and rhythms here at church where we really focus on the scripture and what it means for us to know the Lord Jesus and for us to grow in our faith in him. But what my hope is for us today is that as we look at what the scriptures have to say about eldership, you'll realize how vital this role is, how important the role of elders is, and also the significance of the responsibility that we all have 
in selecting the men who are going to be given the privilege of serving from this place, okay? So we're going to go through this. We're going to take our time with it. We're going to look at a whole bunch of different scriptures because this comes up in a whole bunch of different places, okay? If there's questions again afterwards, you guys are welcome to ask, uh, but we're going to get into that as we go. Now, kids, you guys should have been given some worksheets as you came in to help you listen along to what we're going to be talking about in the sermon. I've already had the girls come up and ask some great questions about eldership, which hopefully we're going to answer during this lesson. I mean, Kiramon, 12-year-old girls being like, could you tell us a little bit more about this Presbyterian polity stuff? <laughs> wow. You know, all right, but let's uh, let's get into this. So, what does the Bible say? Or maybe I should have titled this uh, slide: "What does the Bible not say?" Okay, so first, I want to say what elders are not. All right, this should go without saying. I'm sure this was not a pressing concern for anyone, but sometimes it's really good just to say the obvious. Okay, elders are not the ultimate leader of the church. Jesus is the ultimate leader of the church. Okay, he is the head of the church, his body. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the good shepherd or chief shepherd of his flock. Right? When we talk about elders and eldership, we're talking about under shepherds. We're talking about those people who serve under the one true leader of the church, who is Jesus Christ. And the other thing that we need to understand is that elders are not apostles. Okay? The apostles were Jesus' 12 guys that he called to be those who had special responsibility in the church at the very beginning. And their words have an authority that became affirmed when, when all of their writings, well, not all of them, but, but some of their writings were put together in what we call the canon of Scripture, the, the, the standard books that make up God's holy word to us. So the elders had the responsibility to be eyewitness to this, eyewitnesses to the gospel from the beginning, to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were the first to have authority in the church. They laid the foundation of the new covenant church. They performed miracles, okay, signs of a true apostle. That's not a requirement for elders today. And they also had universal jurisdiction over all the churches. What the apostle Peter, Paul, James said was wisdom for all of the churches, whereas the elders that we have here at Living Church are responsible for Living Church and also in sort of the next level up of Presbyterian government, which is called uh, the Presbytery, but we're not going to get into that too much today. All right, so first up, question is, what are elders? When we talk about elders, what are we actually talking about from a biblical perspective, okay? So we get a sense of this. You can get this from a few different places in Scripture, uh, but I'm going to focus here in Acts 20 because it gives us a really clear one. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, right, it says that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and then in the same chapter, it refers to those elders that he sent for as overseers and shepherds. Okay, so typical Presbyterian teaching in this space says that elders overseers, shepherds, pastors, same thing. So when you're reading through scripture and we talk about what are elders, they are the elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors of the church. Okay? And also really importantly, when we see elders in the scriptures, we see what we call a plurality of elders. So when the elders are referred to in scripture, it's inevitably in a plural form. Okay, we don't get a picture of a church just having a single elder, all right? So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, all right? Uh, Paul left Titus, 
uh, to do unfinished business and appoint elders, plural. When Peter writes to the elders scattered across all the different churches, sorry, when he writes to all the Jewish people scattered across all the different churches, he writes to the elders among you, and same thing, uh, oh, sorry, and then James says the same thing as well, okay? So we see a picture of these guys who are overseers, pastors, shepherds, serving in a team of guys who are overseeing and shepherding God's flock. But within this, there does seem to be a little bit of distinction. So there seems to be two types of elders. So it says in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. So it seems as though there are elders that are responsible for leading the church. We'll look at this a little bit more later. But within the eldership, there are some who focus on the word and teaching. So here at Living Church, I would be an elder who focuses on the word and teaching. Right, I have the title of, of minister, but at the same time, I'm, I, I serve as an elder in this church, and I'm responsible for laboring the word and teaching. Okay, and that, that, So we can see a distinction between those that are serving as elders in a general capacity and those who specifically have responsibility for teaching. Sometimes you'll read about this, and people will talk about like, ruling elders and teaching elders. I don't love that distinction. I, I, don't, I don't love that language. You can ask me about it why later. What we typically talk about in our context is ministers and elders, and that's normally the way that that distinction breaks down. But really, we're all talking about elders here. Now, another important thing we need to say, oops, skipped ahead there, Ooh. Uh, is, I don't know how that jumps six buttons there. Anyway. All right. I know lots of you guys don't originally come from a Presbyterian background, and that's totally cool. Okay? Not a problem. You know, here at church, we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us to follow Him and the fact that we're all called to be a spiritual family in Christ. Okay? We're going to talk a little bit more about when Presbyterianism becomes an important thing. But this is what I want you to know. If you come from a different tradition and you've always had, uh, you know, from an Anglican background, maybe you've had bishops and church wardens or something like that. If you've come from a Catholic background, you've had priests. If you've come um, from a brethren background or something like that, you know, it's it's much more of a plural sort of idea when it comes to how decisions are made. There's lots of different ways out there that churches organize themselves. And this is important. We have different interpretations of what really we think the scriptures say to us about church government. So most other traditions would say that there's not really a clear picture of what church governance looks like, and there's freedom using biblical principles to sort of build your own church government. For the most part, Presbyterians and Reformed tradition think that, no, as we look at the scriptures, we see a pretty clear picture of the church being governed by elders, specifically a plurality of eldership. And so what I want to do is just walk you through some of the biblical reasons for why we think, not that this is the only way or the biblical way, but rather this is God's best wisdom for how we organize ourselves as a a church to have elders in government, right? So these are the biblical reasons for eldership. First one is, the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, appoints elders for the church. Take that, everyone else. We've got Jesus on our side. I'm kidding. We see at a couple of different points where either Jesus or the Holy Spirit is directly have said to actually have put these people in the positions that they're in. So in Ephesians 4, a passage we're getting more and more familiar with, it says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Remember we said elders, pastors, shepherds, same thing. Okay? 
So it's Christ who gave these people to the church to fulfill these roles. Similarly in Acts uh, 28, there we read that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. When they're talking to elders, it's the Holy Spirit who has done this. Okay, so we get this, a couple of passages speak clearly to the idea of it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit who's put elders in place. Also, the Lord has always led his church by elders. When you go through biblical history, you can see that basically at every stage from Moses onwards that we've got elders in the church. Okay, so from Exodus, all right, the time when the God's people were coming out of Egypt, it says, go assemble the elders of Israel. Okay, there's elders there in the midst who are leading. In Judges, okay, when the people are in the promised land and they've been unfaithful, things are not going well, we still have elders, okay, who are being referred to as the leaders amongst this place. Judges were ruled up, were raised up, okay, well, leaders were raised up, but elders were sort of the ongoing form of government that existed. Same thing in the time of the kings. In 2 Samuel, it says, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David, even though we had a king, right, there were still elders who were ruling in their different local contexts and overseeing what the people of God were doing. In Ezra, okay, after the people had been exiled and then come back to the promised land, the eye of God was watching over the elders of the Jews. As you go through scripture, you see that elders leading in local contexts over the people of God was just the standard way that God had arranged things. Yes, we have prophets, priests, and kings, and Jesus now is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and it's through his death and his resurrection that he's fulfilled everything that prophets, priests, and kings were meant to be doing, but elders is the ongoing form of local government for God's people. Third reason, the apostles appointed elders in every church and spoke to the elders in the local church whenever they wrote to them. So Paul and Barnabas, what was their job as apostles? Well, they appointed elders for them in every or each church that they went to. They would come into town, they'd plan a church, they'd get a ministry going. When they had to leave, what they would do, they would anoint elders to then lead the church in their stead, and they would move on and go do their ministry of apostleship elsewhere. All right? Same thing again, when he writes to Titus, he says that I've left you there in order for you to appoint elders. Who are the people going to be leaving the church? We don't want to lead it without, leave it without leadership, so we appoint elders there. And again, when Peter and James both write to churches that are made up of people that have been spread out all over the Mediterranean, their assumption is that there are elders there who are leading in this place. So to the elders among you, okay, let them call the elders of the church. This is just the base level assumption of the apostles that the church is being led by elders. We also see that a specific role is given to eldership, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Okay? The apostles were charged with promoting the gospel, guarding it against false teaching. They were given a specific job. And then finally, we see that the apostle Paul uh, provides regulations for elders and deacons. So he actually explains in 1 Timothy and in Titus the sorts of people that you want to be looking for for eldership. And if he didn't intend for that to be an ongoing thing that they needed to know about, that would be a weird thing for him to spend a bunch of time explaining and teaching about. So we don't see this for any other roles. Okay? When it comes to jobs within the church, elders and deacons are the only two that are defined. We're not so much talking about deacons today. 
But the fact that we have elders and deacons being talked about specifically and being given a job description suggests that this is meant to be something that is an ongoing role and responsibility within God's church. Okay, so that's the, those are the reasons for why Presbyterians have always sort of held that eldership is the best picture of church government that we've been given in the scriptures and why we seek to uphold that. Okay? And if you've got questions uh, about your church tradition or where you sort of come from, maybe from before this or other experiences, very happy to talk about it, love talking about it, and we're right. Um, no, so jokes, 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 jokes. All right. So, eldership. Uh, what does an elder do? This is one of the questions that came from the girls at the back. They're like, they had two questions, actually. They're really good. First one was, um, how old do you have to be to be an elder? Great question. Anyone know? It's younger than you think. Not quite that young. It's 21, all right? Um, no offense to any 21-year-olds out there, out there. You're probably not going to get a Guernsey this time around. Uh, but yes, 21 is the, the low end of what you can, uh, where you can be. Uh, and the other question they ask is, what does an elder do? So, girls, here's my answer. All right. We, in the Presbyterian Church, three levels of government. Local government is like the session, regional government, the presbytery, and then at the highest of its state level is the state assembly. But then even above that, there is the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. And they gave some instructions not too long ago to try and summarize what an elder is and what an elder does. And they said this. They said, elders occupy a pastoral office to which belongs the spiritual oversight of the church. Under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, elders shepherd and serve the church by sharing in its government, teaching the word of God, praying with and for God's people, and modeling life in Christ according to their gifts. Okay? So essentially it breaks down to leading, preaching and teaching, praying and modeling. And I'm just going to run through each of those things real quick so we get a picture of what it is that elders do. Because remember, the question that you guys are going to be asked on November 13 is... Do you approve or disapprove of the people being brought before you to fulfill this role? So as you guys are looking at this, all right, you need to be thinking in terms of, yeah, who are the people in, amongst us that, fit this, that, that are able to do this? And then we'll look at some of the qualifications for what they're, who they need to be. So number one, shepherds lead God's flock. All right? It says the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Okay, so, so the assumption here from Paul is that it's the elders who are governing the church, directing the affairs of the church. So in general, it's their job to govern, to lead, and what that looks like, it sort of falls into to three categories here. Now, preach the gospel. I'm going to circle back around to that one because it deserves its own special slot. All right? But the other things that they're meant to do as leaders in the church is build up the church to maturity and watch over the flock. Okay? Uh, so preaching, I've just got this here as a, a reference here for 1 Corinthians 9, so we can see that this is part of the trust that's been committed to Paul, not only as an apostle, but one that he passes on to the elders, okay? But then also we see from Ephesians 4 again, this idea that pastors and teachers were given to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Elders have been given to the church so that we might grow up into maturity. When it talks about elders being spiritual overseers of the church, what they're meant to be overseeing is our people and are the people as a whole together 
the body of Christ, being brought towards maturity. Now, how they do that can look like a whole bunch of different things. Right? You can have all sorts of different ministries in a church, depending on the gifts and the talents of people and the context that you're in. But ultimately, it's the elder's job to make sure that all the different things that we're doing are actually working towards seeing people built up into maturity as individuals, but also the whole body of Christ. It's the elder's job to see the big picture. Right, and that's important. The, the elder, so, so one of the things, you know, we think about the different roles and responsibilities that we have here. We've got people that look after youth. We've got people that look after kids. We've got people that, you know, might be focused on, you know, growth groups and that sort of thing. That's all great and really, really important. But the elder's job is to see the big picture, to think about how it's all fitting together so that the church may be maturing and being built up in Christ until we all reach maturity of the faith. And the other big responsibility that the elders have, okay, is that they need to be keeping watch over the flock from the dangers that might come to it. And this is where the Bible really leans into this shepherd analogy. Okay, this is a big part of it. So again, it says Acts 20 there, keep watch over yourselves and all the flocks of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. All right, Paul's concern after planning a church is, I know that when I'm here, some of the wolves are being kept at bay. All right, I know what I'm doing, I'm teaching well, but after I leave, others are going to come and they're actually going to try and devour the sheep, the believers here, Okay. And he goes on and says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, this can seem a little bit intense for our regular church life. All right, we, we come in here on a Sunday, we love each other, we've got great community, okay, we're, we're, we're sharing lives with one another. But scripture is really clear that at times, some will rise up from amongst you or from outside who will attempt to do things that will be destructive. The, the, the phrase in even in script, that comes from in scripture is, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a biblical idea. They look nice on the outside, but actually it, it, there's destructive things going on. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they think that they're acting with the best intentions. Sometimes they're not. But it's the elder's job and responsibility to be overseeing the flock in this way, to recognize that there are opponents to the gospel. Now, ultimately, Scripture teaches us that our enemies are the spiritual forces of darkness. Okay, people are not our enemies in the sense of we work against them. We're not, we're not, we're not fighting against people, but we do need to recognize that sometimes people are moving in a spirit that we need to actually stand against. And that's why discipline... Church discipline has to lie in the hands of somebody, and that's the responsibility of the elders. So again, when Peter says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, all also will share in the glory to be revealed, to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them. All right? It's the elders' job. So again, when we're talking about selecting somebody for this job, this doesn't need to be somebody who's like, you know, full of bravado and looks like they can win in a fight and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's, that's not what we're talking about. 
An elder can be in their spirit, and they should be in lots of ways, gentle and kind and humble. We're not talking about somebody who looks like they could win a street fight. What we're talking about is somebody who has the conviction and courage to stand up against false teaching and false doctrine and people who are being destructive and actually serve as leaders and overseers in that capacity. Okay? But the primary way that elders do this okay, is through preaching and teaching. This is the, the number one way that we're actually meant to guard against false doctrine and false ideas that can float around church. So Paul writes this to Timothy, who, is, who again is leading the church there with the elders and appointing elders himself. He says, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. The primary way that shepherds in the church guard against false teaching is to teach good stuff, to make sure the right doctrine is ruling. It's why we make a big deal out of doctrine. Okay, it's, it's why we, we want to make sure that we're, we're going to the scriptures and looking again to see what is the Bible teaching us because the warnings that are given to us is that if we let false ideas float around church or people come in and teach false things, that will take people away from the purity of the gospel and the soundness of the teaching that we have, but more importantly, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they may not have the power to rob people out of Jesus' hands completely, But there is real potential for people to be led astray and to make poor decisions and and make destructive choices that even if it doesn't cost them their salvation, causes a whole lot of pain and disrepute amongst God's people, and it's the elder's job to be on guard against that. Again, the the teaching is so important that it's actually listed. We're going to look at the qualifications in just a second, but being able to teach is a key idea for elders. doesn't mean that they have to be able to stand up here and do this, although that's great. It might be the ability to teach in a small group situation or in a one-to-one meeting. We'll be able to sit down with everyone and explain things to them. But there's a skill here of actually being able to teach, and that's something that's important for them. Similarly, when the apostles and the elders were trying to figure out what they were meant to be focusing on, and there were material needs that were springing up, people weren't getting fed, there was disorder in some of their meetings and that sort of stuff, they appointed deacons to wait tables because for them, they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God. You guys take care of that. We will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, that doesn't mean that elders never help set up chairs. It doesn't mean that elders don't do all sorts of things that we as Christians want to be doing for one another in all sorts of different ways. But it does mean that, again, the specific role that's been given to the elders is to focus on the ministry of the word and also, as it says there, prayer. Okay, our elders are meant to pray for us and with us. I won't spend a lot of time on this. I don't think I need to in order to make the point. But when we ask for people to serve in the role of eldership, we are asking them to commit to regularly be praying for us and with us and leading in that way. And the final thing that we see in the picture here is that they're meant to model their faith. So the author of the Hebrews says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And similarly, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 
For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. When selecting an elder, when saying whether you will approve or disapprove, you need to have confidence that this person that I'm approving right now is able to model the Christian life in such a way that I feel like as they're following Jesus, I can follow them in the way that they love and lead within the church. All right. I know there's a whole bunch of information. We've got one last little section here that we're going to look at. All right. But are you, are you, are you guys, are you feeling the weight of this role? Like this is not a small thing. This is, this is not just being asked to, to sit on like, you know, the board of your local community theater. Right? This is not something where we're just asking somebody to you know, come along to a meeting for a couple of hours a month and just give a few thoughts. This is an ongoing office within the church where just as I never stop being a minister of the gospel, that's one of the things that I've called to here, elders don't stop being elders. Right? There is a sense in which once you're called to this role, that now becomes a part of what you are because you can't just sort of switch off. All right, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm an elder between these hours, but then the rest of the time I'm just, you know, chilling or whatever. No, no, no. You are an elder. That, that's part of the responsibility of this office. This, this is a job that doesn't stop in that sense. Now, of course, we have rest, we have rhythms, we take care of one another. That goes, you know, it, it should be said. But this is, this is a serious responsibility. And so, with that in mind, we get these qualifications. And this is the last thing that we're going to look at today. I've, uh, I've broken them down into six C's. And when I say me, I've stolen this from other people's notes that are really good. Uh, so the six C's that come up, that sum up the qualifications for eldership, okay? The first is confession. Elders, again, sometimes it's just worth saying the obvious, all right, need to believe in the gospel, <laughs> all right? They need to understand and confess the true faith of the scriptures, if you are like, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. I'm not a big fan of the Trinity. We'd be like, mm, sorry. Okay? No. But because this is a Presbyterian church, there's also a requirement here for those who are going to lead and be an elder in a Presbyterian church that you need to be somebody who can confess in accordance with the historic and reformed Presbyterian faith. Now, this is important. I just want to make this really, really clear. If you're here with us and you don't count yourself as a Presbyterian, in fact, before we started talking about this this morning, you might be like, I didn't even know this was a Presbyterian church. Um, it's possible. That's okay. To be a member here at Living Church, you don't need to be a Presbyterian. We don't ask you to make any confessions of faith about Presbyterianism to be a member here at Living Church. But our elders, who are leaders in the church, because we are a church that is held together and we share a common government but also common doctrinal stuff, it's important that you're able to sign off on this. So we, there's, there's a whole bunch of vows that elders are asked to make, but two of them go like this. Do you believe the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures for the Old and New Testament, so that they are the only rule of faith and practice? So you have to believe that scripture is God's ultimate authority, right? That's the first part of this. But then beneath that sits the second vow, do you own and accept the Westminster Confession of Faith? This was a, a document that was written in the 1600s that outlined the basics of what Presbyterians believed. It's been kept as it is since then. At the start of the 20th century, 
uh, when the Presbyterian Church of Australia was formed, uh, they, they had a big debate, do we keep it as it is, do we, do we make some changes? And what they decided to do was to give this extra sort of document called the Declaratory Statement that sort of helps you interpret it to understand how that works, okay? And so there's, there's some freedom, like, you know, not Presbyterian elders don't agree on everything by any stretch, but you have to essentially agree that the Westminster Confession of Faith is an exhibition of the sense in which you understand the Holy Scriptures and as a confession of your faith, and this is important. So not only do I think Presbyterianism is good and rightfully represents the Scriptures, do you engage firmly and constantly to adhere thereto and to the utmost of your power to assert, maintain, and defend the same? Now, what that means is this. I've read the Bible. I've read what Presbyterians say the Bible is saying, and I agree with that. And also, now that I believe that that's what Scripture is saying, I'm willing to defend this. So it's not just like, yeah, I'm kind of okay with it. There's actually a bit more to it. It's actually, no, no, I've got a real conviction that this is good and right, and that this is something worth upholding, not because it's Presbyterian, but because I think that this is rightly represented what the Word of God says. Does that make sense? See the difference there? We're not trying to uphold Presbyterianism because Presbyterianism is the thing. Rather, what we're saying is Presbyterians have been at this for a while. We think they've kind of nailed some of this stuff about what the Bible is saying. And because we think that they've got the Bible right, we're going to uphold that. Now, like I said, it doesn't mean that there's agreement on everything. There's space for, for questions and, and all that sort of stuff. That's okay. And if you're particularly interested about that, I can tell you. One of the big ones is infant baptism, though. I do need to say that. You need to uphold infant baptism as a good and right practice. That's an important part of this because that fits with what we call our, our sort of covenant theology and the idea that when we see the kids here, that we treat them as part of our church family. We don't wait for them to make a confession of faith before we include them as part of our church family. So that's a big one that some of you might you know, often will come, have to be wrestled with. Okay? It doesn't mean that you necessarily had to have your kids baptized when they were little. They might have grown up and you might have changed your mind. That's okay. But, but that's a common one that does sort of come up, so I figure it's worth mentioning there. So that's the first one, right? Confession. Second one, okay, character. Watch your life and doctrine closely. For time's sake, I'm not going to go through everything that it says in Timothy and Titus. I'm going to read it out, okay? But I want you to just note that when it comes to the qualifications for eldership that Paul mentions, they're almost all to do with the person's character. So he says, now the overseer, again, elder, overseer, shepherd, same thing, is to be above reproach. Faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, and, quarrels and not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, you know what's funny? Every time I read this, I'm like, that's actually, it's kind of a low bar. Like, in the, in the sense of, this is what you'd hope for for every Christian, right? Yeah, I would hope a Christian is not given to drunkenness and violence. All right, that's base level sort of stuff, Right? But the important thing here is, is that this is a consistent, lived pattern of behavior. We all stumble, of course. We all have areas of sin that God's working out graciously in our heart. And yet at the same time, our expectation is that as we as Christians grow in the faith, some sins get left behind. 
Like when I, when I struggle with greed, I'm no longer talking about, oh, do I embezzle this money? It's more like, you know, do I give that extra amount to the mission field? Like that, that's a, that, both are in the area of greed, but that's a slightly different equation, right? Oh man, I'm, I'm dealing with greed in my heart because I'm not sure if I give this amount or this amount to the mission field, as opposed to, man, I've really got to stop this embezzlement, all right? And so in lots of ways, it's baseline morality, but the important thing is it's consistently lived out over time. All right, and last one uh, for the character idea. He says to Titus, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing and quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, this is ruling out people that like to put on a big, you know, braggadocious front and, you know, I'm the tough guy and, and all, like, that, that's not what we're talking about. Even though there's that element of guarding the flock and that sort of stuff, what we're looking for people, really, is people to show the character of Christ, right? Strength expressed in gentleness and sacrifice. Courage expressed in love and giving. This is what we're really talking about when it comes to the sort of person that we're looking for and the character that we're looking for. All right, now, quickly going through these last ones. Competence says there uh, they've got to be hospitable. They've got to have some skills here as far as how you can welcome and relate with people. Got to be able to teach, manage your own family. If, if somebody's home life is just in disrepute and ruin, again, even if it's a tragic circumstance, not necessarily their fault, okay? If it's something where, like, man, there, there's, there's stuff going on here that might just cause us pause and say, well, maybe it's a no or maybe it's a not yet because of what's happening there. But essentially, it's like if you can do it on a small level, there's trust that you can do it on a big level. So there's a skill aspect to this. And then the last three are conviction. Whoops. Okay, there's got to be a desire that this is something that God's calling you to. There's got to be a sense in which this is something that I want and that I feel like God is doing. And alongside of that, we see the idea that it's a calling, that this is something that when we appoint somebody into the eldership role, the church is recognizing we believe that God is calling you into this. And then finally, circumstances. Sometimes there's lots of people that would be a great elder, but the timing's not right. There's stuff going on in their lives. The situation that they're in at the moment just means that even though they've got all the other ones going, it's just a not yet sort of a deal. And that's okay. There's no judgment on that. There's no criticism of that. We've all been in times like that where sometimes it's just it's a no for now. And that's important as well. So thank you all very much. Kids, you've been amazing uh, in, in being here with us for this. I know it's a lot for us to take in. Like I said, I'm going to be around for questions. Because let me just remind this again, okay? What we're being asked to do is approve or disapprove those who will lead in God's church as we seek to uphold the name of Christ, as we seek to fulfill our mission to make disciples here in South Brisbane and beyond, as we seek for this place to be an ever-growing community where we all press on towards maturity together, as we build upon a foundation of, of being biblical and Christ-centered and loving, who are the people that we're asking to lead us? Who are the ones that we say, we trust you with this as we all play our role in this church? Who can faithfully follow Christ so that I can follow them? And I'm going to pray that we would make a wise choice there. Father God, thank you so much for the wisdom that you give us on who leads your church. 
We thank you for the greatest example for us in Jesus. We thank you that he came into this world, that he humbled himself, that he lived a sinless life and died upon the cross in order to pay the price for our sins, sacrificing himself for the good of those whom he was called to lead for eternity. And we pray, Father, that as we weigh up over the coming weeks, who might serve us in this space? Who might be good choices to to lead, to oversee, to teach, to pray and to model what it looks like to follow you? The Lord, we'd make a good decision led by your Holy Spirit. As we sing now, as we give praise to you, may we do so with hearts that are just ever thankful for the privilege that we all have in serving you. And with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and all he's done for us. And we thank you for this in his precious name. Amen.